Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. Hi, everybody. From Wondery, welcome to another episode of Tides of History. I'm Patrick Wyman. Thanks for joining me. The Bronze Age Near East was a complicated place. For modern scholars, and even more so the authors of high school textbooks, the work is usually that of simplification, telling the stories of key figures like Sargon of Akkad and Hammurabi of Babylon, cities like Uruk, and states like that of the Assyrians. Maybe, if we're lucky, we get some references to linguistic and ethnic diversity or the divide between the settled world of cities and farmers and that of wandering pastoralists in the semi-desert. But the reality of the Bronze Age Near East was much messier and harder to understand than a straightforward story of city-states, empires, and kings. Different ethno-linguistic groups, lifestyles, dynasties of would-be rulers, migrating mercenaries, and ephemeral states were all essential pieces of the fabric of that world, and they're pieces that don't fit neatly into simplified accounts. To help us get a better grip on that complex and confusing Bronze Age reality, we've got a fantastic guest today. Aaron Burke is Professor of Near Eastern Archaeology and the Kershaw Chair of Ancient Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he's also a member of the Costin Institute of Archaeology. Professionally, he's the co-director of the Jaffa Heritage Project and is the author of a ton of scholarly articles, along with several books, the most recent of which is The Amorites and the Bronze Age Near East. Professor Burke, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Patrick, for the invitation to be here. So you've worked on a bunch of different aspects of the history and the archaeology of the Near East, but what drew you to this topic in the first place? Well, the topic for me is one of a couple of decades of interest, actually. It emerged from my own interest in warfare in the early second millennium, which is where I began my doctoral research about 20 years ago. And towards the end of that research, as I looked at this sort of broader spread of a common sort of set of traditions of warfare in the age of Hammurabi, or as some scholars refer to it as the age of the Amorites, I sort of recognized, as many others have as well, that there were certain similarities of traditions that warranted sort of a broader contextualization of what it was that was contributing to this set of shared traditions across such a vast uh, geographic region. Even though there's certain you know, diversities locally here and there, there was a great deal that bound it together. So I sort of scratched at that and sort of pulled at the threads of the tapestry until I was satisfied that you know, one, one could perhaps begin to understand all of the factors that were at play and behind and, and in the construction of this. I mean, so what you just mentioned there is something really interesting. I think it gets at the heart of your work and the age more generally, which is the the kind of tension between these broadly shared traditions that cover huge amounts of space and time and local particularities and diversities. So that, I mean, that brings us to the Amorites. In broad terms, who were the Amorites? Uh, How have scholars thought about them? What makes your approach to the Amorites different? Well, uh, this is the perennial question. I would say that scholars, you know, for about a century have been trying to get at the question of the issue of the Amorites. And, you know, mine is just the latest in a long series of attempts. Um, The Amorites are one of these uh, groups that, well, they're well enough known in ancient Near Eastern history, but before they became 
famous sort of through scholarship and study of ancient Near Eastern sources, especially things like Akkadian uh, cuneiform sources. It really was, they're really a group that were, were known in, the, in biblical tradition, you know, and for mm-hmm. passing references as one of a handful of legendary enemies of the Israelites, and more importantly, perhaps as the inhabitants of Canaan prior to the Israelites' arrival, at least as according to biblical tradition, they're portrayed. Um, so they were known in the origins of ancient Near Eastern studies through the sort of biblical references. And then as scholars began work in places like Mesopotamia, uncovering vast hordes of collections of Akkadian cuneiform sources, even Sumerian sources in the late third millennium, names uh, started to emerge, uh, references to a group in Sumerian referred to as Mar-2, by the signs Mar and 2, which in Semitic is later rendered as Amuru, which is, of course, where we get our Amorites from. Uh, as a name. And so this group was known and has been known through all these sources. The problem and challenge, of course, with them is that these sources range from biblical writings that date circa, let's just say, 600 BC or 6th century, and just in the years preceding that, all the way back to the mid-3rd millennium BC. So you're talking about nearly 2,000 years in which um, the label is thrown about in sources and uh, brandished by some individuals as an identity of themselves, sometimes used to refer to other groups. Um, so at some level, I, you know, in Near Eastern studies, I like to equate this to about as close to uh, the label Greeks in the Hellen- Hellenic world, where you know, there's a lot of debate going on now about how one should qualify what it was meant by claiming anyone as belonging to or holding a Greek identity. Is it meaningless, you know, when you start getting into all the diversities that existed for Greeks or, in this case, Amorites, what becomes of a broader label and is there any kind of meaning that one can attach to it? There's been a lot of diversity of thought when it comes to sort of questions of scholarship, a lot of varying perspectives. One of the real challenges to this is that the subject is kind of divided up among different specialties. So on the one hand, you have a very deep and rich tradition in Assyriological circles of examining the references to the Amorites in various historical sources and in epigraphic sources, letters, texts, contracts, all kinds of stuff. The challenge, of course, is that this is a separate corpus than, say, the textual corpus that is associated with the Levant, the area that I work, that it runs from Israel to the southern border of Turkey. And it's also separate from any potential connections one might make to material cultural displays of Amorite identity if we can ever identify those. And this would mean that archaeological or Near Eastern archaeologists, out of which I have begun my own career, you've got disparities of traditions and approaches to the question of identity through text, archaeology. And of course, there's a degree of iconography as well, if you consider places where individuals called Amorites might have represented themselves in statuary or wall paintings. So these sort of diversities of practices in terms of research, as well as geography, have sort of balkanized what is potentially a kind of unified world that wasn't fraught with all the modern boundaries that we have that also create limitations so that you know scholars working in Syria and Iraq and Israel and Lebanon only have a certain sense of how similar their material cultures are 
and consequently, perhaps the practices behind them that generated those um, particular signatures in the archaeological record. So I guess if you were, you know, to come to your ultimate question there, what makes my approach different? It's fundamentally that I'm trying to bridge a lot of scholarly divides in terms of specialties that we're all tending to work in, and then to bridge a kind of geographic set of divides that take us from the Persian Gulf all the way to the Nile Delta, and even into parts of southern Turkey, to see the world in a way that I hope is more accurate to the way that was experienced in the early second millennium and on both sides of that period than perhaps today in ways that we've sort of fractured that landscape. Well, that's one of the things that I thought was really interesting about your approach to them is that you weren't trying to nail down one single like essence of Amorite-ness, um, that you were comfortable with that label meaning different things depending on when and where we're talking about over time and space. Like, What are some of the ways in which the label of Amorite was deployed? Is that something that the people we call Amorites use themselves? Did they have a different understanding of what that term meant than outsiders did? Yeah, I mean, this gets at the question more broadly speaking of the issues of the way that we're approaching identity in the ancient world now. And I think part of it is to take some of what we witness in our own modern existence, and that is the diversity, you know, that lies under the surface of any label that we append to a group. We can deploy a label in convenience. We can even agree to be labeled as a group if we see some benefit in it. Um, and you know, similarly in antiquity, people could quote unquote negotiate their identity with respect to different groups if they saw benefit in the way that that would benefit themselves as rulers, benefit the people that they were ruling over or the communities to which they belonged or were apart economically. Um, and so I think one of the things that it sort of gets at is, uh, at least my effort tries to get at, is this negotiation of identity and antiquity that had a very practical set of realities to it, whether it was treaty making between kings who identified themselves as Amorite, or maybe sometimes didn't so overtly label themselves, but conducted themselves in completely analogous ways with other individuals who did label themselves Amorite. So you have individuals who deploy the label personally, uh, individuals like Hammurabi, who in his own stila and the prologue is describing who he is and you know the various groups that he represents or rules over and how he views his own relationship to each of those. Um, so you have it brandished there of himself. You have it used pejoratively in certain literary texts of the period that might insinuate that some people that didn't see themselves as Amorites might have deployed it in a negative way to characterize others. So we see it in a sort of the full range, I think it's fair to say, of the way that we might expect the term to be used. Likewise, there are moments where it doesn't seem to exist and be deployed at all as a label, and rather the best we can do to identify those individuals as belonging to broader Amorite cultural traditions is to look at the underlying linguistics of their names, meaning that the linguistics of their names may betray their broader cultural affiliations in ways that, for very obvious reasons, when they're amidst other individuals that are similarly affiliating themselves, they don't need to go out of their way to point out their identity. So we see that range of 
deployment of the label or aspects of the identity or inclusion within things that are perhaps traditionally identified at the time by certain individuals as prevalently Amorite. It does take us into a very challenging place with the question of how we can choose when we don't have anything explicitly telling us what is or is not Amorite, how we choose those things for ourselves as criteria for Amoriteness or Amorite identity. But I think that that problem is not any different for antiquity than it is in the modern time. You know, you can say, well, what makes uh, an American, you know, set of teenagers? You know, they eat burgers and they do certain things, right? Yes, but, you know, what's that going to tell you about that group, you know, that everybody's going to agree is a common sort of expression of their identity? Um, You will find variations of that regionally. You will find variations within slight differences of age group and so on and so forth. So you have this challenge, and it's not one going to be you know, resolved in my own efforts by myself, but rather a constant dialogue in our field of understanding these nuances that are part of creating a set of characteristics that are fundamentally evolved from practice. And so maybe my analogy to teenagers eating burgers is a good one. You know, it's one of these activities that is done and no one's thinking about identity while they're doing it. Um, And so many of the things, um, especially when we get away from these monumental inscriptions and overt deployments of identity for whatever purpose, when we get away from that, we start to see that there are a lot of local practices um, that are shared and really betray people's affiliations, whether to certain economic groups, uh, certain social kin groups, uh, certain power structures. And those tell us more about, and they're much more honest portrayals or depictions, if we you know seize upon them, of people's affiliations in those different spheres than even often overt labels will be, right? So you can say one thing, but if you never really follow through, you know, with the Amorite practice of making treaties or feasting, then, you know, another person may claim, well, yeah, he talks a good talk as an Amorite, but isn't really all that great an Amorite. Um, (laughs) You know, in ancient times, there were the same issues that one could see with respect to, to true claims to identity as you know, defined by one person or group against another. Um, so it's a challenging subject, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it's really fascinating because identity tends not to be something that we think about too hard in the present day. You know that like identity is is situational, it's fluid, but it's also to some extent often unconscious. It makes us uncomfortable when we have to make explicit identity claims a lot of the time. But it, it's one of the things that's really valuable about studies of identity in the past is that we have to think really hard about it. We have to think about what it is that makes somebody belong to a group and why people claim to belong to certain groups at certain times. It sheds a lot of light on our own world in ways that I think otherwise can can be hard to get to. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think one of the things that you would probably echo as well is that in antiquity, we can sometimes divorce ourselves a little bit from the sort of freighted character of some of these questions in our modern age. And it's funny because you can get in an academic debate with people, and I have recently about the question of Amorite identity. There's a moment when you're sitting in the midst of it, you go, wait, well, why are people getting so worked up about this? You know, like, <laughs> what's at stake for me about whether we define this, these people as Amorite or not? And why are some people so averse to the idea of a label that might have been occasionally embraced by people, or at least the underlying practices 
that resemble or reflect uh, their willingness to sort of interact in very productive ways and creating sort of connections. So, you know, you have to kind of check it. But but I do find that antiquity, especially for talking about a lot of these issues, allows us to kind of abstract a bit more and put ourselves on both sides of various um, relationships and situations. Well, it, it's so funny that you mentioned people getting worked up about it because the I, I was originally a scholar of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. And one of the big scholarly questions and something that I worked on for a long time was the question of barbarian identity and especially the Goths, right? So who were the Goths? Where did they come from? Um, how did they define themselves? And people were really, really mad about it. They were really mad at each other and they like wrote just horrible things about each other in, in scholarly articles and books for a couple of decades, it was like this surprisingly angry back and forth debate. But it's for precisely that reason is because I think it made people think really hard about what made them who they are and how it connected them to, in that case, a very specific past, which was the way that Nazi Germany used Goths and barbarians as as kind of a, a series of historical tools. So there were some people who wanted to reclaim the Goths and there were others who wanted to use these tools that had been developed by scholars working within, let's call it a very specific historical paradigm. But so people got real mad about it. And I think it's not, um, it touches nerves. The study of identity always touches nerves. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, it, I suppose that's fair. I mean, I guess it's, you know, reasonable to understand that it can be used and abused. My tendency is always to look for a kind of middle road that negotiates the realities of our world, the realities of interactions, and, um, to sometimes distance ourselves a little bit from however, you know, what paranoia we may have about how people might use it. People can use and abuse scholarship in so many ways as, you know, recent history, I think, more than anything demonstrates um, and, and quote unquote facts are applied or deployed in, in, in a variety of ways that we could never imagine. So I think in the end, you know, we, we have to kind of, um, you know, be the, the more scientific minded and say, Hey, look, I'm just going to describe what I see. And then, you know, on, on the one hand, and then after that, I'm going to give an analysis of what I think it means. And, and that's kind of the direction I went with this. And, and for me, the book turned out to be longer than I think I would have imagined it would have been for this subject, but probably half of what I thought I could have done if I'd have just let, you know, kept following the, the crumbs. <laughs> that's always the case with a book. It's twice as long as you think it's going to be and half as long as it might be. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. 
Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. So speaking of the messiness of the world, that's one of the things that I enjoyed about your book was that it portrays this as a messy world using a lens of a group of people who are everywhere and nowhere simultaneously. And part of that has to do with the Amorites as as mobile people, not like they're kind of a wandering mass of rootless migrants out of somebody's nightmare or or imagination, but but they were people who were on the move for a variety of reasons. They were professionals. Um, Mobility was part of the job description for at least some of them. What were the the professions that people who were labeled or labeled themselves as Amorites did that took them so many different places? Yeah, you know, that's ultimately the uh, the biggest question behind all this. And, and in, in the end, you know, what you end up with is really a kind of slice of life. You're really looking at the full range of professions that someone could be involved in. Obviously, some are far better documented than others. But what is remarkable is just how much we can reconstruct of the mobility of, let's say, the Middle Bronze Age world between 2000 and 1500 BC. It's an incredibly mobile world. So, you know, coming to mind, obviously, and, and for the longest time in scholarship of the ancient world is, of course, merchants. You know, we all are fascinated by the world of merchants because I think if we lived in the ancient world, we'd love to have been caravanning, you know, between cities and <laughs> getting the grand tour, right, that you would effectively get. And that is something exceedingly well documented in in Middle Bronze Age sources like the old Assyrian trade route that runs between uh, central Anatolia and the city of Ashur in northern Iraq. Yes, it's it's very well documented. And there are other ways in which archaeology can tell us, even when we don't have texts along some of these corridors, that there were small and large caravans alike trucking along the roads between territories that for us are vastly separated. I mean, you have to remember that a place like Egypt, which you know is not by any stretch really Amorite at all, except for sort of a ruling dynasty in one part of its history, has things like lapis lazuli showing up and other things that had to have traveled from Afghanistan, you know, or places very far east, at least as far as we can tell geologically. So, you know, we have to reconstruct that world for mobility as it concerns mercantile behavior. That is probably the least exciting, you know, or least, let's say, innovative thing that we can say about how uh, some of this mobility happens in the kinds of ancient contexts like the Amorites. What's more interesting is to, to sort of dig below the surface and to sort of reconstruct different levels of social hierarchy and how they interacted. So you've got, of course, a royal class who are engaged in a certain amount of mobility and travel. The King of Mari talks about going to the palace at Ugarit, seeing this amazing place, and I want this, and I want that, you know, in my palace too. But what you have to do is stop yourself and think about the implications. This is not one person traveling up to Ugarit. This is a retinue, a whole group of people that are going with them. Then you also discover that elites within their communities have whole villages and towns that they possess in other discontiguous states. So they're, they literally have holdings within other places as part of a sort of cosmopolitan elite. And when they manage these places, they have to have servants and a whole group of delegates who are representing their, their needs. And here you can think about things like in the world of the Medici in the, the Middle Ages, you know, and the Renaissance, where, you know, there are these really incredibly distant connections and influences that are occurring across space. And so whole sets of craftspersons that are described in places like the Mari archive 
who are literally at times bunked within the quarters of the palace together. So you can imagine some barber, some acrobat, some architect, all of these individuals coming from different places employed for their skills, inhabiting common spaces and uh, sitting at the ends of their beds, sharing stories about the places they come from, sharing traits and practices that would have been considered foreign. And you multiply those things by the number of kingdoms involved in this, the size of those kingdoms, the full geographic extent of where those kingdoms are located and their proximate neighbors. And then suddenly you start to get this kind of down-the-line effect of the exchange of ideas that's really impressive. Another whole aspect on this particular score is, of course, warfare. And I think warfare as a broad category is one we often neglect and, of course, uh, for very good reasons, talk about almost exclusively in a negative light. You know, warfare leads to huge casualties, death, it spreads disease, and all these things are, you know, bleak in the extreme, for sure. But there's also aspects of productive cultural exchange that take place in the context of warfare and warlike activities, perhaps mercenary service, which in many cases involves, you know, the hire of individuals to protect caravans, protect uh, certain installations, but doesn't necessarily mean that these individuals were seeing regular and, and sustained combat. What's fascinating about those movements is, uh, first of all, the mechanisms of mobilization. We know that in the Middle Bronze Age, there were times when battles resulted with armies of 10,000 apiece allied on one side, made up of maybe three different armies like this, and another three on the other side, such that you're looking at battles of 50, 60,000 people within a, a certain area who have been brought from their kingdoms, levied from the villages in the countryside. You know, you're bringing whatever able-bodied men to do their tax service to the state, what's called Ilku in, in Akkadian. And they're, they're doing this service by you know, going off in the summer on these campaigns. And when they're not off in the summer on campaigns, they're probably building fortifications for their kingdom and certain communities in their kingdoms. But they're mobile and they're moving. I mean, can you imagine that you know, the king of Katna in the northern part of the Levant, north of Israel, is uh, sending forces over to northern Iraq, you know, and they are alongside forces from Mari and maybe against the, the king of Ashur and, and alongside others from Aleppo. I mean, there are people that are rubbing shoulders here that come from villages who had no reason to really ever travel very far from uh, their home and, and communities. And, and that would be our normal reconstruction of their circumstances. But these texts attest, you know, effectively logistically through, you know, mathematic calculations that you're having to levy troops from across broad geographic regions. And, and consequently, you're bringing a lot of people into contact with each other and with each other's ideas uh, so that you are exposed to things that you would have had little reason to be aware of, not only of people at your same social class, but you're seeing the elites from other communities. And so, you know, that much like, say, Renaissance Europe, medieval Europe, is going to lead to a certain exchange of ideas that, yes, occur at, at the upper echelons of elites, but also filter down in such productive ways and, and dynamic ways into lower levels of the social hierarchy. Um, as people aspire to be elites, want to do things like elites, and, and share in so many other, uh, even less uh, 
perhaps exciting <laughs> traditions, you know, perhaps cooking and and uh, even the the cooking wares they shared. Um, so there's a lot of levels at which to explore the implications of this. And obviously, you know, in the in in my own work, I stuck with the more conspicuous and and maybe more uh, prevalent monuments of the Middle Bronze Age. Well, it's something I thought was really interesting and about the way that you approach this world is that like you can't have a world in the sense that we talk about them without people moving within it. A world is a, is a space of, of movement. It's a space within which people are are coming together and coming apart in, in different configurations over different distances for different times. We get so focused. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you mentioned. There are kind of like temporary mobility of people going from place to place because we get so focused on migration. Um, on long distance permanent movements of people. And that's just a subset of mobility. Like that's just one way in which people move. And even migration is not permanent. You know, lots of people do life cycle migrations where they they move for a little while, they go work someplace and then they go back home, you know, changed by the experience of having done that. Permanent long distance movements is just one subset. It's just one category. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, one thing that really informed my research, and I, I really wouldn't have imagined a sort of convergence of different research lines that I have, one dealing with refugees and the archaeology of Israel in the Iron Age. I wouldn't have seen a convergence of that and except this sort of following of threads. And what you mention is something that we can really learn from the study of refugees in modern times. We're likely to be accurate to project this back in time, and that is to recognize that Refugees, which make up, you know, those very episodic moments of, quote unquote, major migration, mass migration, you know, those are sort of punctuated moments in a punctuated equilibrium model, you know, where these things happen, but they are of different scales, um, happen in different places at different times, and are hard to track for sure. But what's most fascinating about the sort of sense of uh, the archaeology of refugees is that we have to constantly remind ourselves, as you're saying, that most people aspire to go back to where it is that they have had to leave unless there is something that fundamentally changed and eradicated everything that would draw them back. And certainly that happens in time. In my own work, one moment in time in the broad arc of exploring Amorite identity that gets at this question of mass migration is something that we're really only just beginning to explore the implications of, is a climatological event in the late third millennium that is referred to as the 4.2K for thousand years ago BP event. So 4.2 thousand years ago, which translates to 2200 BC roughly, there was a major event. In fact, we all live in the shadow of this event that in modern climatological studies is called the Megalion. The name comes from a cave in India where uh, this event is one of the many places where it can be recorded in the, the local record. And so this event, at least for what we would call the Fertile Crescent, had a, an aridifying effect, meaning it led to drier conditions. Now, it didn't make you know humid places desert, what it made made was less or, or less humid or marginal areas contract in ways that perhaps are not that foreign to us in modern times where we watch, you know, slight changes in temperature affect the most marginal areas first, desertification at the margins. And so you had contraction of areas that had been exploited in, in a very maximalist way by pastoralists, especially agro-pastoral communities, these large 
towns that grew up in these marginal areas that were centers of supporting these pastoralist endeavors. Why, why were they there? They were there for the, 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 the rearing of sheep, principally for the production of wool, which was inherent to the production of textiles, which was a major sort of element of the ec- economics of the Levant and even parts of uh, northern Mesopotamia. So, you know, when you when you look at that and then you realize that you had this aridification event, there are, you can count up the communities that are abandoned where the archaeological record stops at that moment and no one resettles there because it really never returns in the same fashion and to the same intensity. We're never told about that in the ancient records. It seems to have happened pretty quickly and it seems to have mostly been irreversible in a good bit of, of the Near East. And that did kind of push people in a certain direction and not allow a meaningful return. But as you said, those are rare events and the vast majority of movements in the realm and questions sort of surrounding Amorite identity really concern much nearer term movements. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You know, if we were going to talk about the effects of warfare, another one of these is scatterings of people and communities um, mere 10, 15, 20 kilometers at a whack that must have to do with the constant sort of stirring of the pot in the ancient Near East that contributes to the intermixing of communities. Um, and so refugees in southern Mesopotamia were, you know, not only a result, perhaps Amorites and others, of climatological collapse, but also even imperialist efforts by the Akkadians to knock heads in northern Mesopotamia that would have led to flight by people and communities to places to escape Akkadian um, rule. So there's probably a combination of factors there. It's, it's a challenge to get at you know episodes and moments that can be well documented from all of the sides of the record, you know, archaeology and text. But if we allow ourselves some latitude to understand very basic uh, functional needs of these communities and the the material limitations on them, we can kind of project where they end up. And sometimes we can even see uh, modest reflections of that in the archaeological record. Well, that, that's really fascinating because you have an event or series of events that effectively creates a kind of a diaspora and a group of people who – a group of essentially mobile people who over time spread out. They take on professional characteristics. Something I've always been fascinated by and, and something that you talk about here is the way, one of the ways in which an ethnic identity or a, or a group identity can become attached to occupations. So they're not necessarily interchangeable, but it's like, oh, when you think of somebody belonging to this group, they do this kind of job. That seems to be something that happens with at least some groups of Amorites and and warfare and mercenary warfare that it's like, oh, you want to you want to have a war? Okay, there's some Amorites. Let's go hire some Amorites to fight the war. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in particular in that transition, so towards the end of that period of aridification where 
Amorites seem to have abandoned, and many communities, were, many of whom probably were not Amorite, have abandoned this uh, quote-unquote zone of uncertainty, as I call it, or actually as other scholars have called it, and, and have moved out of that area. Southern Mesopotamia suddenly has a small number, a modest number of individuals who are you know, labeled by others as Amorites. In some occasions, they may live there and be more integrated, having come much earlier. But we do have seem, seemingly almost a Praetorian guard, if you will, um, who emerge around the Ur III dynasty in late third millennium, and then are the individuals who sort of pick up the pieces after the collapse of that kingdom of which they had been a part. And yes, mercenary service, military service, um, seems to be one of the ways in which that occurs. And a parallel to them, contemporaneous parallel, are Elamites coming from Iran, who are also doing the same things among other conspicuous groups. And, you know, related to that is a, is a wide range of products and all kinds of things that get the adjective Amorite wool or Amorite this or Amorite that, daggers, for example, you know, that are evocative in a kind of... Um, knock-on way that there are other groups of professional behavior that are identified by non-Amorite groups as distinctly products of Amorites hmm. and their communities. So, you know, one doesn't want to stretch too much what that means, but there certainly is this economic identification of, you know, those kinds of sheep, um, that kind of silver, that kind of particular product, daggers, for example, that associate with uh, these communities. And, and I've referred to these as communities of practice, to borrow some language that uh, anthropologists uh, tend to use when they're referring to groups of a particular occupation who develop an entire sort of working culture, sometimes even distinct languages or at least terminology for the way that they refer to things. So you have some of that going on too. And yeah, mercenaries are really a big part of this. It, it reminds me of you know 17th century Europe where there was a heavily ethnic aspect to mercenary service. You have huge armies of mercenaries kind of rampaging back and forth, especially across Central Europe. But like if you were a person in living in what's now Germany in the middle of the 17th century, if you had met a Scottish person, it's because they were a mercenary. If you had met a Swedish person, it's because they were a soldier. And so in your mind, if you're thinking of this entire ethnic group, it's not like you've been to Scotland and you've met Scottish farmers, if you've met a Scottish person, it's because they were a mercenary holding a gun or a pike. And, and so like you can have these kinds of associations of, of group and this kind of mingling of ethnic and, and occupational identity in, in interesting ways. Same thing at the end of the Roman Empire, where you know the difference between a barbarian and a soldier is kind of hard to suss out. Those things can get kind of mixed up together in, in ways that are really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I love all those parallels. And in fact, I had to restrain myself when writing this book of drawing upon all of these parallels because you sort of hope that there's a sort of awareness of of historical parallels, especially these broader ones that that in many cases you can just kind of make passing reference to, and people will say, "Ah, yes, that that that's really interesting." I'm thought about how that would project back in time. But come back around to this question of mercenaries and soldiers. I mean, it's something that you might be more familiar with than I. You know, it's really interesting that we kind of get hung up on how to define what a mercenary is. And if you look at antiquity studies, whether it's in the world of Greek mercenary service or uh, more broadly, what we should label professional soldiers in certain contexts in the ancient Near East, it's really rather remarkable that 
the etymologies of the word soldier and mercenary are really not that different. Both of them involve military service for pay. What has happened sort of in a broader cultural dialogue is this sort of immediately negative associations that we have with mercenary service. When I want to be, you know, a little subversive or really rankle feathers, you know, I point out uh, when talking about warfare in the modern age that more or less modern militaries, even if they belong to the state, are effectively mercenary. I mean, you know, the service is is a very abstracted one. It is very commodified. Yes, there are, you know, there is a, a loyalty to the state, presumably by everybody who's signing up. But in so many ways, the way that we have approached the use of the military in modern Western states, especially, it's not remarkably different than if those individuals were completely foreign with a contract, you know, to carry out these services. And in fact, sort of the turn towards and reliance upon contractors in various um, military spheres now has is fundamentally betraying that kind of mental shift and an acknowledgement of actual practice, right? No, I think that's exactly right because we are stuck with a kind of a mental model of what warfare should look like that's that's actually out of date. That the age of mass mobilization warfare where military service was kind of broadly spread throughout a society essentially lasted from the beginning of the 19th century up till, let's say, the middle of the 20th century. So like that's a 150-year period-ish where military service was a widespread thing throughout society. And what existed before that were small professional militaries that were essentially disconnected from the broader body of society. And what we're moving back to is smaller professional militaries that are effectively disconnected from the kind of the body politic. I mean, even if you look at the United States military today, which is a very large, but still professional military, it's not like it's drawn representatively from throughout society, right? There are heavy patterns in terms of geographic origins and ethnic origins and socioeconomic status. Yeah, that go that go along with your membership in the military and different branches of the military, right? So it's not like it's not like you're drawing a representative sample of society and then plugging them into the military. It's they're much more kind of specific phenomena. To take this back to the Bronze Age Near East, like it's not surprising if you have military service being associated with more with some particular ethnic groups than others, socioeconomic groups, that, that all of those things can go together as well. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most uh, sort of surprising things that came out of my research and something I was never comfortable with as a graduate student was the sort of rampant association that Near Eastern scholarship made between Amorites and pastoralists. They were almost synonymous terms and still to, to some scholars almost seem to be used synonymously such that, you know, if you encounter Amorites in <clears throat> references in Mesopotamian literature, uh, the portrayal is to seize upon the sort of uh, yokel from the countryside who doesn't belong to urban Mesopotamia. And what's what's sort of become clear is that alighting of these two identities and assumptions that there is a kind of singular economic activity that most Amorites were associated with is, is completely based on just a couple, it's sort of overemphasizing a couple of pieces of data. And then when you look at the bigger picture, what you're seeing is, is a pattern that, you know, is really exposed by the, the decline in the late third millennium that, you know, once these frontiers close where so many people who perhaps a high percentage of whom identified as Amorite or were labeled as such, 
have to give up these activities. It wasn't like they could just take their herds into areas that were more humid as if no one else was there. I mean, <laughs> the presumption has to be that they were exploiting these marginal areas because this was what, you know, sort of suburban sprawl or economic sprawl looked like. They were capitalizing upon less used areas because of the level of intensity of exploitation of the areas that were more humid behind them. And so when you get a collapse of these zones, you have to see a pivot to something new. And that pivot means that, as anachronistic as it may sound, I mean, this is unemployment. I mean, suddenly there are a lot of families that are looking for ways for subsistence and what's going to put bread on the table, quite literally. And the old activities are no longer possible. They must have sold very large stocks you know, of their herds or sent them to slaughter because in a very short amount of time, they could not be sustained. So the pivot to something like the military service, whether putting yourself in the employ of some warlord or aspiring lord or elite, would have created really a lot of opportunities. And it's a tough one to see in the textual records of the ancient Near East. Although I got to credit a colleague at uh, University of Chicago, Seth Richardson, who has identified that perhaps one of the leading causes behind the decline of the old Babylonian period and the fall of Babylon has to do less with invasion from outside than a sort of fracturing of the landscape and reliance upon, I mean, a very long list of very diverse groups of mercenaries. And so that what you're seeing is a kind of unraveling of uh, centralized authority. And this would contribute, I mean, obviously, if you have an invading army to bring about the demise of a capital city, you know, it could be a tipping point, I suppose. But you had some very underlying, important, and complex structural problems that mercenary service was a part of. And, and so, you know, you get these little glimpses of it, but you have to kind of flesh out how it integrates into a much broader social and, and economic landscape. That's a really good reminder of what our sources can and can't show us about the world that we're looking at. And if we just read along the grain of our sources, we're going to miss things. We have to bring other questions to it. And one of the things that, again, I really liked about your book was it just shows us how diverse this world actually was. Instead of thinking of it as a homogenous place, you know, which is something the, the textual sources would often try and show us, we have a real patchworky type feel to it. You have dynasties claiming Amorite descent scattered all over this Bronze Age Near East. You have different groups of people living side by side. You have different languages and ethno-linguistic groups. You have different ways of living, different subsistence patterns, all melded together with no clear boundaries between them. It's a much messier world than I think we might expect. And it's, it's a viewpoint that I really appreciated. Well, I'm delighted to hear that, you know, for somebody that's uh, not coming from Near Eastern studies, that one can walk away with such a clear picture of the lack of clarity. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it is messy, exactly. And, and I'm glad it comes off that way. At least there's some sense of coherence to um, how identity relates to that messiness. Because uh, this is just, as, as, as became clear to me as I was finishing the work, uh, this is just but one identity, even within the arc, the, the time period I'm looking at that one could do a great deal more with. And, and I hope that people will and will will abstract some of the things that we've talked about today to other identities and, and looking at the vectors by which um, sort of exchanges occur and mobility, what role mobility plays in it all. Well, 
Professor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for writing this book. It was really wonderful and uh, fantastic to chat with you about it. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here and uh, keep up the good work. It's really enjoyable. I much appreciate it. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Tides of History ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Be sure and hit me up if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about on Tides or something you'd like to see. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA or on Instagram at Wyman underscore Patrick. I write on other topics at patrickwyman.substack.com. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producers are Jenny Lower Beckman and Marshall Louie. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.